welcome to The Reset Show. Today we've got three very special guests on and we're going to be talking about HR versus racism and the community that's been formed around this incredibly important topic. So um, The Reset Show is, has been created as a response to what we saw as the opportunity to redesign the world of work for better, the opportunity that arose out of the pandemic. And it's a moment to pause and reflect. And we always have on some really fascinating guests that hopefully look at this opportunity through different perspectives. As I say, today's episode is all about HR versus racism. We have three of the founding members of that community with us today. So I'm gonna do my best to, these are three incredibly experienced women. So I'm gonna do my best to do a, a simple introduction and then I'll ask you guys to fill in the gaps. What haven't I said that we really should know? So Nicole, Nicole to sign is, um, Nicole and I met um, through, funnily enough, through a podcast that I heard Nicole on um, probably two years ago. We've had many amazing conversations over the last 18 months. And Nicole's been a tremendous support um, for me as Emma and I have been writing our book, EX by Design. So Nicole is a founder and, and chief employee experience designer at Talent Imperative, which is an employee experience design consultancy. Nicole, I know through her own podcast, Talent Tales, is absolutely passionate about bringing design thinking to the world of human resources. I was one of many, many collaborators uh, that Nicole managed to recruit 18 months ago, a little bit less than that, when you were running the um, HR versus the virus hackathon, which was a global virtual initiative, which was absolutely astonishing. Um, and I know that now, Nicole, you're one of the founding members of HR versus racism, which we're going to be talking a little bit about later. So Anika, Anika describes herself as a passionate um, people developer. She's team builder, lead and leader. Um, she's also, Anika is also a seasoned talent and organizational effectiveness executive with a really diverse experience. She's now the founder and, and runs an organization called Converge Convergence Solutions, um, working with clients in the areas of talent development, OD, learning, diversity, and change. And lastly, sorry, Kendra, to come to you last. That had to be in one order, I guess, and this is the order we've done. So Kendra, um, equal parts change leader, people developer, culture builder, and creative. Uh, with a background in psychology, um, we like a bit of psychology on this show, change consulting, learning and comms, and also a creative background as well. So I know that you've, um, you use those combination of skills to tackle big business solutions. So it's fascinating to have that sort of the creative aspect in this conversation as well. So anything about the three of you that I haven't said or individually, I'll come to you, Nicole, what haven't I said about you that I really should have included in that introduction? Oh, no, that was such a kind introduction. <laughs> so appreciated. And we are so excited to be on the show and go international. You know, we are founded in the US. And so this is kind of our international launch. So thank you so much for having us. <laughs> well, like it's like a sort of a, a record tour launch or something like that when you have your first big <laughs> deal. Kendra, is there anything I haven't said about you that would be really useful to add in at this point? Thank you, Jenna. Wonderful job, Belinda. Thank you so much for having us. We're, we just couldn't be more thrilled to be on the show and able to have this conversation. Thank you. You're all being super kind. Thank you. And Nika, is there anything I haven't said about you that we really should have? 
Hey, Belinda, no, we're just really glad to be here together and with the rest of the community here across the pond, so to speak, to share a little bit about our story. So thank you for having us. Oh, excellent. Thank you so much. And welcome to also to our live guests as well, who I know will be um, adding comments and thoughts and questions into the chat as we go along. So we're super excited to have you. So um, this is a, it, it's such a, it's, I think I'm more nervous about this recording this show than we've been recording podcasts for a year now. And I'm more nervous about this one than any other. And it's not just because I'm flying solo today a little bit. This is, as I've been encouraged to express it, it's, it's messy, it's a difficult subject and it's full of emotion and the fear of getting it wrong is so huge. Um, so I'm wading right into that messiness and I'm em embracing that nervousness because I know that this is gonna be a really important conversation. So thank you again for joining us. On, on this journey. So first question, um, tell us a little bit more about the HR versus racism community. Sure, I'll go ahead and get us started here. So uh, the HR versus racism community is so near and dear to our hearts because it's really a way for HR or any professional whose job it is, is to take care of the people in any organization for them to have a support system to go to and really feel connected and feel like they can bring up the issues that they really can't talk about in the in the workplace because they're the ones that are seen as the coaches as the mentors as the therapists as the ones who are meant to really support people going through all of these changes and all of these and having these really important conversations and so we saw the need to it to build a community where HR folks can come together, have these important conversations and really lean on one another as a support system. And so what we've done is we've, we've pulled together a mighty network where we are able to share stories and share, have conversations and, you know, talk about the news of the day, the different, you know, things that are going on in the world read books together, have book clubs and online conversations and gatherings. It's just really a special place online where, you know, we can come together and really be the support to one another. Love it. The power of conversation. Exactly. How, exactly. How did the community come about? Sorry, I was actually on mute. I said, oh, I just started talking. Uh, I'll, I'll jump in here if it's okay for the team. You know, Belinda, it actually started out of relationships, right? Uh, Kendra and Nicole and I worked together at the same professional service firm several years ago. And so that was really the beginning of, of our relationship. But if you think back to a little over a year ago, everything that the world was going through, right? Uh, there was a lot of fear. There was a lot of anger. There was the pandemic. And probably around the April, May timeframe, around the time of the George Floyd situation, right? And the violence that was a byproduct of that. I, I was having a conversation, Nicole and I had committed to stay connected based on the different you know, work that we were doing, similar businesses, we committed to stay connected. 
And in the midst of all that was going on, whether that was violence, whether it was fear, whether it was uncertainty, whether it was people worrying about loved ones and their own lives and health, in the midst of everything that was going on, Nicole reached out probably a day or two after the George Floyd murder. And her email simply said, are you okay? And I reached back out to her, first of all, because I was caught off guard in full transparency because out of my entire professional network of people that I worked closely with, who was white or Caucasian, she was the only person that reached out to me. And I said that to her, I said, you know, I, not only do I appreciate it, but it just raised an awareness of opportunities to, to check on each other. And she asked, she asked just, you know, are you okay? There is so much going on. And out of that, we had an amazing conversation, very transparent, painful, um, uncomfortable, just about the different sides of the experience. And what we did was we, you know, just literally in that sharing and that pouring out, we realized there was an opportunity to have deeper conversations and deepen our relationship because they were parts of her walk-in experience that I, of course, would never know same for her with me. And out of this conversation, she said, hey, I, you know what? There's another alum I want you to meet. You might not have met her while you were at, while you were at the firm. I, I, wanted, I, wanted, I want us to connect with Kendra. And I said, well, yeah, let, let's, let's have more people come in and, and join the conversation. And for the three of us, it was really an opportunity to get to know each other as women, as individuals. Uh, we, we knew each other in terms of the practice, you know, the practitioner side of us, the industry, but we didn't totally know each other as human beings and what those experiences were like. And so we wound up creating inadvertently this safe and sacred space to have conversations that we probably would not have had anywhere else. Um, you don't have that level of conversation without lots of tears and tissue, uh, <laughs> which I think continues to be, uh, you know, part of that process because we allow each other to come into the space just as we are. Yes. Uh, we don't have to make excuses. We don't have to make thing, things pretty. We just come into it where we are as we are and, and we allow ourselves that. And that's where we ask the hard questions. That's where we challenged one another. That's where we brought information that one another might not have known. Uh, that's where we dealt with things that we probably carried, whether that was trauma, whether it was experiences, uh, whether it was things that happened to us or things that we knew had happened to others. And we said, you know, we are in this space of the people practices, right? Whether that's talent, HR, OD, learning, change, all of these spaces. And we said, if we're carrying and we are understanding that to really help and be a part of the organizations and the clients that we serve, how many more HR professionals that sit in the same seats or similar roles that we do are challenged by the same conversations mm -hmm. or are having to unpack their own biases to understand how they can improve a process or a system or walk alongside leaders that are having to make really, really intentional and transformational decisions that affect the diverse people in their organizations and that they work with. And so out of that HR versus racism was born and I think Kendra said it perfectly. It's really just us bringing ourselves and giving people permission 
to ask the questions without the judgment, without ridicule, uh, you know, which is so challenging in today's social media environment to have a place where you can ask a question and it's not, um, it's not judged, right? Uh, our desire is that we heal. And so it's not about shame. It's not about shaming. It's not about embarrassing people. It's about providing truth, fact, and emotion and the human element to that so that we can all individually intentionally heal and then we can take and bring that healing into the organizations and the people and clients we support. Thank you. I'm really, remember I've been reading and listening to your, your conversations and you're writing about this. And I'm really curious about the word heal about the use of the word heal. And, um, you know, what's the, uh, one of my questions was, you know, what's the need for the community? Yeah. And I'm, you know, you, you expressed that beautifully, but it's this, this point about healing, I'm really curious about. Yeah, I'll, I'll jump in and, and I'll add a little bit more clarity and please Kendra and Nicole come alongside me. You, you know, one of the things I think was probably in our earliest conversations as Nicole and I were talking, we were having one of our just no holds barred conversations. And I said, you know, I think that there is an expectation or an assumption that only people of color uh, and indigenous people that have experienced racism need to heal. Mm -hmm. And the reality of it is both white and people of color need to heal because there is trauma that we both carry from decisions, from laws, from processes, from experiences, from exchanges. Uh, and so I think that there tends to be an expectation that, you know, well, one side of this equation needs to heal and move on, heal and get over it. When the reality of it is, and if I go back to your conversation when you first started this podcast and you said, I'm feeling, you know, I, I have some concerns that this topic is doing something to me internally. To me, that's one of those indicators, right? And so it's the opportunity to address not just the healing, but People carry shame, people carry guilt, people carry fear, people carry, uh, you know, the fear of being misunderstood, misinterpreted, uh, things of that nature. And so all of those things, quite honestly, can only benefit from healing. And what we've always shared is that, you know, change is inevitable, right? The things that are happening in the world, clearly, you know, as those of you may be experiencing in the UK or other parts of the world and other cultures, uh, in other, you know, in other countries, change is happening and it is moving rapidly, but healing is optional and it's a decision that you make. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, we want to be able to provide room to those that want to unpack that in a place that's safe so that they can heal so that they can then share that. Because the reality of it is if policy and procedure and policing of the two we're going to fix racism, it would have already been fixed. It wouldn't be an issue that we're currently talking about or dealing with, right? You can't, you know, you can't create policy to change the heart of an individual or to change their mind. And I think that that's where we continue to get this tension and this rub and this clash because we're trying to create systems that create accountabilities, which are good, but that's not going to affect somebody's heart. Yeah. Relationship does that. Proximity does that, intimacy does that, healing does that. So that's a little bit about how we think about healing. And you know, that even that definition is evolving over time for us for sure. Yeah. Yeah, and I can just add to that from my perspective because that was a belief that I held coming into that discussion. I still remember that. And that was one of those huge aha moments for me because I came into this. You know, we just as white people, we just have to get over it. 
right? And, and, and help and change, but at the same time holding that guilt and that shame of not doing enough. And so I was like, when we had the discussion, I was like, so when you say healing, do you mean for, you know, our black community members? And can, and Onika was like, no, for everybody. And it just blew my mind away, them saying that and just reframing my own mindset. Uh, and that's the power of different perspectives, right? So you get the power of different perspectives, but then also to have the permission in a way to be imperfect in this process, right? And hopefully you don't hurt somebody in the process. That's always still my biggest fear, right? As I'm learning still, <laughs> I don't wanna, you know, cause others to trigger their own trauma again and things like that, right? So hopefully my learning journey will not be harmful. Um, but that's one example of, of the power of our group and just providing these different angles and perspectives. And we had that with a lot of terms. So healing was one, allyship was another one, you know, and whenever we talked about and wrestled with these concepts, we really, really benefited from the different perspectives that we all had on, on that concept. Yeah, the power of community, that creating that safe space to be able to do that and have those conversations that are genuinely illuminating. They're literally, I know for me, literally shining a light on something that I've just never seen before, but it's always been there, which is just mind-blowing in so many ways. Nika, something that you said actually sort of pointed at the work of HR in particular, obviously HR is one part of the community, is, you know, is, the, is the focus of the community, if you like. And something I've heard you talk about is HR being privileged, powerless, and complicit. Tell me, tell, I mean, unpack that for me. There's so much in that statement. What do you mean when you say that HR is privileged, powerless, and complicit in this? Yeah, I can, I can take that because I think I said that somewhere. And yep. we also, so one of the very first things on my own journey, so I did a lot of own identity work, self-reflection, and then sort of sought to bring that to the HR community because I felt there was a gap. To my knowledge, no HR organization is sort of addressing this holistically, right? And, and there's been on the, on the same token, there's been studies um, that DEI is, I think Burson just came out with a report of like 30 HR competencies. DEI is the one that's most lacking in the function. And you know, those of us who grew up in HR, we know why, right? Unless you've worked in DEI, you were not necessarily trained in, in the concepts, social justice, things like that, right? So it's, it's a lacking competency. And so I, I actually always thought about it, or, you know, what I've been thinking about is sort of, it's sort of a continuum. It's sort of a lacking competence in the function results in a lack in confidence, and that results in a lack in courage, right? So if we mm -hmm. can increase competence, we can increase confidence and then courage to have those conversations in the, in, in the, in the company. But when we talk about this, this you know, privileged, powerless, complicit, that came out of a, a program or a, another one of those da moments of mine. I read the book and I can recommend that to anybody. It's called Design Justice. Um, and that deals, you know, Belinda mentioned, I come from design thinking and HR. And so that book grapples with the fact that the majority of the design and design thinking function is 90% white and male, right? And so she talks about the fact if, if those who design are, you know, one monolith, how can they create 
programs and processes that are really meeting the needs of a diverse population. And so that sort of percolated in my mind and I started thinking about the HR function. And so I did some research and um, I found that 65% of the HR function is white and female. So I'm like, hmm, I think the same concept. <laughs> Again, one of those, why didn't I think about this earlier? 65% um, of the function is white and female. So what does that, what does that mean when we design workplace programs? Right, so that's mm -hmm. when it sort of started sort of clicking. And so that's the privilege, right? Mm -hmm. So the function as white women, we hold some privilege, right? So how do we wield that privilege? Powerless <laughs> is that we know we are still a back office function. We are primarily, primarily female function. So we've all experienced as HR that we sometimes don't feel like we have the power to make the needed changes possibly, right? So it's this sort of tension between privileged, but powerless, question mark, <laughs> and then complicit, because really, if you think about it, the current workplace was designed by and for white men. In mm -hmm. HR, and that's another realization I've been having, is we have been upholding the system and continue to do so. And, and, and if you think of some of the programs and processes that we have in HR that are clearly so antiquated and outdated, outdated that prove that, right? So for example, why haven't we advocated for earlier for pay equity in the workforce? You know, again, HR is mainly women. Why haven't we pushed that, right? Why are we, and this is mainly US, but you know, why isn't there comprehensive parental leave? Um, you know, the US is still lagging in that, you know, among all developed nations. You know, why do we still give out um, golden parachutes to mostly white male executives, even though they've underperformed? I mean, this is all still the systems we are creating and upholding are supporting the white patriarchy. And I never connected the dots. But so that's why I'm using the words, you know, privileged, powerless, complicit. And I think those are not like excuses, but I think th these are facts. And so now it's up to us, once we know about this, what do we do with this? And how do we challenge this? And how do we speak up? And how do we become courageous to mm -hmm. challenge these tensions? Thank you, such a great explanation. And it makes loads of sense. I like that, that sort of through line from competence to confidence and courage to do something that seems on paper, it looks very simple. Um, but what what should HR folk be doing right now? And how can I guess how can we move beyond the what should they be doing to the actual doing bit of the of the doing, if you like? Yeah, I'll, I'll jump in here. You know, here's the thing: there is no one size fits all, right? When we talk about the solution, because the reality of it is, every organization and its culture and its history is very different. Uh, the reality of it is there are some organizations that have and see HR as the strategic partners that are working alongside the business, uh, you know, to think about not just business goals, but their talent strategy, how they think about the people that they need and thinking about it in terms of unique and discrete skills. I think we have an opportunity as HR members of that decision-making body to always be the ones to call the question. 
And, and I, I use that term when I'm working or I'm a part of a team and I'm working with leaders and they say, okay, well, what do you do, right? Sometimes that, that banner that I'm wearing is, a, is around change leadership or change strategy, helping them think through that. Sometimes it's around organization effectiveness. Sometimes it's around learning. Sometimes it's around OD. And at the end of the day, our clients, quite honestly, they don't know what all of our labels mean. Let's just go ahead and poke a, poke a bubble, poke that bubble and pop it, right? They don't always know, right, all that goes into all that we do. And so I, I, I simply believe in it, that it's important to speak their language and say, I am here to always call the question when you are making a decision to ask, but what about your people? Mm. And I, I keep it just that, just that clean. And I think it's important that we go in as HR, not just with the goal of protecting the organization, but being a steward of the people, right? Whether that's around skills, whether that's around representation, whether it's around compensation and benefits, uh, whether it's around wellness programs, whether it's around a return to work strategy, right? In the midst of a pandemic that is ebbing and flowing, it is our responsibility to be the truth teller in those spaces as those decisions are being made. So mm. a lot of that, to your point, Belinda, it sounds really, really easy, but you know, one of the things that we found, even as we were thinking about you know, HR versus racism holistically, the reality of it is the more you unpack, the more you uncover. The more questions you ask, the more you learn. And the more you realize the tentacles that, you know, whether it's bias or, uh, you know, practices or treatment, right, of BIPOC people in organizations, you realize that in many instances, when you're working with clients or peers and partners, they say, but you know what, we're following the process. We've not done anything outside of the process. And so, what we then have to say is, okay, is it time to now explore pulling apart the process? Because if that's the process, and this is gonna always be the result, whether the result is that we have less skilled and talented people, right? With diverse background, diverse talent, diverse education, diverse age, right? Then the process may be the problem, but we have to also understand that there is a human element to it. And so, you know, that's why, you know, some of our, our content and programming, such as Dear White HR Ladies, actually started to talk about, you know, what are the things, what happens when I bring my bias into the room around a process? Uh, what happens when I, as an HR partner or leader working to fill our, you know, our critical roles, when I am not challenging leaders and hiring managers around a diverse slate? Uh, what does it mean when I am asking leaders to say, hey, I'm going to bring you the best of the best, right, as part of this hiring process, but I'm randomizing and I'm removing the names and labels from all of these resumes and CVs so that we are truly thinking about skills and talent and capability and not extracting or placing bias on names, on age, on education, um, things of that nature. And so what you'll quickly find in many instances is that's where the resistance starts because people are uncertain. And so, you know, that's where, again, it's the opportunity to start unpacking and asking those really tough questions because organizations that start this work or want to do it through, you know, partnership with HR and or DEI quickly find that it's not as simple as a checklist. It's not as simple as having, you know, our DEI statement, um, it really requires you to go deeper than you thought that you had to do. Yeah. And for many leaders, that's scary. 
just in full transparency. But we have the opportunity as HR leaders, or we should, is saying, you know what, yeah, it is scary. We're going to uncover some things that we did not do right, but we have the opportunity to operate in courage and be transparent about that and make it right. Right, because once you know, you can't ever unknow. Right, when when you when you're learning and you're uncovering how uh, organizations operate or they make decisions about their people, once you know, you can't go back to not knowing. But you do have a decision about how you're going to move forward. I love it. Unpacking and asking the tough questions is, is and and just that is a continuing cycle, isn't it? The more you unpack, maybe the tougher the questions get. And I I love that is you can't unknow. Once you found yeah. out, and that does just run individual, you know, moving sort of back from HR to sort of individual, it makes you go, oh, in that cringe moment of like, oh, God. But just acknowledging the fact that we all get it wrong, but our job is to carry on learning and investigate however icky that is. I guess that, that's just my reflection. But just coming back to yeah. our next question for you guys is, you know, our listeners are HR folk, yes, absolutely, but they're beyond that. They're people with an interest in creating work that's better, creating workplaces that are better. So um, tell us a little bit about what else us, uh, we can do as individuals to, to continue this work or start this work even. Sure, I can take this one. So I think that the first thing that's most important is letting go and letting go of this idea of should and what. <laughs> this idea that I should be doing this, I should be doing that, I should be able to have this conversation, I shouldn't be feeling these nerves in my system, have like this cringy feeling in my about these things. I think that should is really something that holds us back by taking action. And it can perpetuate this idea of I'm not enough, I should be doing this, I'm not enough, and I'm not doing so I'm just going to like continuously, perpetually, you know, be in this should state. And I, I will say from my own experience, um, something that I have really had to work through over the course of my career, because in a lot of ways, I've felt this, you know, need of, you know, this idea of should, I should be doing this type of work. Why? Why can't I do DNI DNI work? I don't have the background. I don't have the skills. You know, I should be doing it though because it's really important, and I want to make sure that we're doing the right things and that lifting everybody in the organization and really being able to help make sure that everyone is able to bring their best selves to work. But I'm not doing it, and you know, it just kind of this, you know, this drained feeling of you know, you know, I'm not enough. And so I'm not, I, I can't do anything because I'm not enough. And so it's this cycle. And, and so I think that letting go of those ideas of should, shouldn't, this and that is the first step. And I think that that enables you to come to the table and actually have these conversations. I, there's, it, it's taken me this long, you know, I've been in, I've had been working through my, through my career. My career journey has been about, you know, 12, 13 years now. And it's taken me, you know, this long to be able to even have conversations about race in the workplace and to even have a voice enough to even say any of these things that I'm saying to you right now. Yeah. And so I, I think that, you know, letting go of the shoulds, letting go of this idea that, um, 
you know, I'm, I, I don't know what to say or someone's feelings or, you know, I might get in trouble for saying these things. There might be some sort of reprimand for me, you know, calling things out in meetings or calling out these processes or, you know, looking at things in a different way. We, we, it's really, really important that we start to talk to one another and relate to one another in, in, in just the most simple ways possible, just like we're doing right now. And until we're able to let go of those, those feelings, that fear that, you know, that you're not good enough or you're, you're going to hurt someone's feelings or whatever is holding you back, you know, we really can't move forward. So that's, that's, that's what I would say. Our yeah, that's so powerful. That's so powerful. I mean, you're talking in the world of emotions here, right? And obviously emotions are the most powerful thing of all. But that idea of the should creates a barrier to anything, doesn't it? And if you get rid of the should, you let go of the should, it enables the conversation to start, which is where it all begins. Um, I can see it in the corner of my eye, a little bit of chat in the chat. Um, so Rob, I'm just going to ask one more question. Um, and then I'll, I'll come to you and see if you've got a question or a comment that you want to feed in. So I'll ask one more question, Rob, and then I'll, I'll come over to you. We're talking about emotions and, and, and letting go. So hopefully this is a build on what we've just been talking about, but how do we get more comfortable with the emotions rather than hoping that they go away? Um, and, and so I don't know, how do we get, I just acknowledge that this is all, there will always be a lot of emotions around this, but how do we just stop them stopping us talking about racism and actually doing something. Does that question make sense? How do we deal with the emotions and stop them being a barrier to doing something? That's the question I'm trying yeah. to ask. Yeah, yeah, no, that's a great question. And I think it, it's, a, it's a nice segue to, to what Kendra was just sharing. You know, one of the things that inadvertently happened for us because we had relationship early on as we were talking about HR versus racism, it was really the fact that we intentionally created safe and sacred spaces, right? Um, it was the place where we could, when I, when I tell you that our meetings, when we are meeting and it's just the three of us, <laughs> they, they, are, they are tissue filled, right? And we give each other space. And sometimes we come into those meetings and we're angry. Sometimes we're frustrated. Sometimes we're disappointed. Uh, sometimes we're hurting. But the reality of it is before we get to any of the business at hand, we address and acknowledge the temperature in the room. And that's very important. You know, Kendra was mentioning, you know, the importance of bringing our whole self. You know, one of the things that we shared with Nicole in full transparency is understand that where we are now in terms of thinking about sharing and communicating emotions, feelings, um, history, the reality of it is as, women of color in our spaces, sharing this information could be a threat to our job, right? There, there are decisions and things that we have brought to the forefront that we literally say, okay, you know what? I'm going to do this, I'm going to say this, and I'm gonna say it if my voice is shaking, but understand this could cost me something. Mm -hmm. And that's the reality for 
BIPOC people that when we come into these systems, these roles, these jobs, and let's be clear and transparent, the higher you are in an organization, the more visibility, the more power, and the more impact those conversations have, you run the risk, right, of potentially impacting your livelihood. That's the reality. And so us sharing that with Nicole was critical. I said, because we're now talking about taboo topics, right? We used to talk about the fact that, you know, what was the big taboo topic? Compensation. Okay, you do not tell coworkers what you make, you know, your, your, your band, your level, you know, your offer. Those were considered taboo. The reality of it is right now we are, we are literally sitting in the discomfort of the taboo topics. We've talked about the fact that if you think about the Crown Act, which is something that is actually going across different states here in the United States, as a woman of color, my hair is locked. Guess what? Jobs can deny me an offer because of my hair. Because of its texture, because of its texture, because of how I choose to wear it. Because if the person sitting on the other side of that hiring process and or their bias and or the policy states that they can deny me work regardless of my talent, my skill or my capability. That affects my livelihood. And so where do I go when I have to, where I need to have that conversation? If we're sitting in, this, in, the, in the place of an HR decision maker, when we're having to go to that hiring manager and have the tough conversation that is emotionally, that is fraught with emotion to say, you know what? We've had a chance to look at some of the data People of color don't stay in your organization. Can we talk about why? Can we talk about why people of color or people of different genders don't have the same level or number of promotions coming out of your function? Can we have that conversation? Uh, can we talk about exit interview data that says that people don't have opportunities or get the best roles and the best opportunities under your leadership or under the leadership of people that you promote because there is an expectation or an assumption that you hire people that act, look, or think like you. These are all emotionally fraught topics, but the reality of it is this is the space that we sit in. So it's really a double-sided conversation, right? And that's, you know, why the community was so important because as owners and keepers, of these processes, many times we are sitting on the side of the conversation as upholders and keepers of process. We are the stewards of the policy and the decision-making. So where do you go when A, you know that that policy doesn't accurately reflect the organization in the way that it should? Mm -hmm. And then, oh, how about the fact that we are also seeing some of these same issues and challenges within HR constructs and so where do you go when the person that is not necessarily getting the appropriate hiring, the appropriate incentives, the great projects and or the promotion opportunities, and you're an HR leader yourself, where do you take that, mm. right? So it's, it's about how do you create those spaces? And I'll be honest with you, it takes, you know, I, I've shared this with, with Kendra and Nicole for sure, walking into these spaces and having that level of conversation takes courage. Because these are not, we, we did not get to the place that we are overnight. It's a marathon. It's not a sprint. And so it's going to take time to get out of it, but it takes intention. It means constantly asking the question, okay, are we looking at this? Have we brought enough 
voices and faces and ears to the room that may have a different, excuse me, a different perspective to make sure that a decision that we're getting ready to make that affects all is truly good, better, or best for all. Uh, and not through necessarily the view of one people group, right? Um, and then I would, I would just close this statement that, you know, as we think of BIPOC talent, right? And by BIPOC, I mean Black, Indigenous, people of color, uh, you know, across the spectrum, we're not a monolith. And so many times we think of programming that, you know, should hit a broad brush or a broad stroke of individuals. You can't think, you know, you can't think of some, you can't think of diversity and one size fits all in the, in the same <laughs> yeah. sentence. And I think a lot of organizations, we're still, quite honestly, we are still struggling with what that means. But just understand that people of color are not a monolith. There are different right. beliefs. There are different perspectives. There are different experiences. Uh, some of that trauma related, but not all. Uh, and so it requires, again, dealing with the emotions that come with those decisions, sitting in the discomfort and being willing to listen to, to the various stories so that you can co-solution together. That makes mm -hmm. sense. Mm -hmm. So asking questions, sitting in the discomfort, in, in the discomfort and then looking for solution. Uh, yeah, so much, so much there. This is gonna be one of these podcasts that deserves a second and a third listen because there's so much learning for me in this conversation. So thank you. Um, Rob, I said I was going to come to you if you're not already unmuted, if you could un unmute. Did you have a question or thought that you wanted to share? Um, it's probably a bit of both, but thanks, Belinda, for that. Um, can I start by saying to Nicole, to Akina, to, to Kendra, I feel you. I feel you. <laughs> I feel you. Um, and it's to say, nice seeing you again, Debbie. Um, and to everyone who's put Reset Lab on and this Reset Lab on, Thank you, Katie. Uh, please pass on to Emma. And thanks, Belinda, for, for, for hosting in the way that you are. So, so huge thanks and lots of love. Um, something you were saying, Akina, um, about the headwind and about the um, high wire and the position we often take up uh, when leaders in, uh, as minority leaders, but leaders in, in certain organizations. I recall an incident where we were invited, we being black members of staff, were invited to um, create those safe spaces. This is pre-George Floyd. This is about four right. years ago um, yeah. here in the UK. It was in a big government department, Akina, and three of us came together. Myself, uh, my heritage is Jamaican, West Indian. Um, uh, a sister, Yvonne, her heritage, also Jamaican, um, although her parents were born in the UK, England and an uh, Asian Indian. The three of us came together uh, to forward this project to create safe spaces uh, targeting black, Asian and minority ethnic people, um, the term that's used here in the UK. And to speed the story through, the head of DNI, Diversity and Inclusion, was a white woman. The head of HR was a white man. And the CEO, the head of the department, was a white man. And I remember we went into the room Akina, this probably won't surprise you as a story, but we went into the room to discuss what we three, myself, Yvonne and Artie is the Indian uh, Asian uh, lady. We went into the room to discuss and lay out our plans for how we would create those safe spaces. And we didn't know, but what we bumped into was an instruction 
from the CEO as to how it would work. And that instruction was being echoed and repeated by the present HR lead director and was then being supported by the head of DNI. And what Yvonne was brave enough to say and do, and I have to confess, I wasn't brave enough to say and do, but I felt and stood by her as she did so, was stop, have a look at what's happening right here. We have been invited to lead this project and to design what happens next. And with our intrinsic ownership, talk about what needs to happen. We are breaking no rules. We are being innovative. We're being tempered radicals, yes, but we are playing within those rules. And yet you are deciding that that isn't what's going to happen. And so if I fast forward the story, because I don't want to hog the mic and you may want to edit some of this out, <laughs> but I have to say to you, it ends with myself, Yvonne, Artie, all leaving the organization. Wow. And so I guess my point wow. is, when this happens, how do we stop hemorrhaging colorful talent? Because you can get all the colorful talent through the door that you like. If we're leaving out the back door, if we're leaving on stress absence or leave, if we're going through presenteeism, if we're falling sick, as Dr. David Williams puts it, the African-American who I'm sure you all know, talks about racism makes us sick. How and where will this all end? I, as I listen to your story about your hair, Anika, I think about the tragedy of so many women that have now changed their hair in order to fit in. That's, the, that's what grips me. How do we change that? Hmm. Yeah, wow. So Ralph, first of all, thank you for for sharing and 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 changing the air a bit in the in the podcast because it's it's the reality. Um, you know, we've also seen it happen, and, and and I know that I've shared this with with several clients and teams that I've been a part of. You know, many times uh, talent of color, diverse talent are asked to come in and, you know, share your stories. We, you know, we want to do listening sessions. We want to do focus groups. And what I, I tend to, to share with leaders is be very careful about how you establish the foundation of those routines, because you have to understand that what you're actually saying to somebody is come into this room and we want to listen to you share your trauma come into this place that has proven to not always be safe for you or good to you and tell us all and show us all of your wounds, show us all of your scars, you know? And the reality of it is that is very, very challenging because many organizations quite honestly don't know what to do with that information when they get it, right? or there becomes a desire because it is so uncomfortable to now put these guardrails around what is shared, what you can do with it, um, how it will be socialized. And quite honestly, the, the, the common seed of that, right, Rob, is fear. And anytime you are looking at organizations that are wanting to do this work, unless there is full transparency and the willingness again by the most senior leaders to sit in the discomfort and first unpack it for themselves and then go out to the organization. It's going to, it, there, there are going to be opportunities to fail or to falter. 
And that's why many times I, I recommend to other leaders and peers in this space and say, hey, I've been giving this amazing opportunity around, you know, this DEI initiative or working with different people of color. And my first question is, okay, where does the leadership team sit? What work are you doing with them first? Because the reality of it is until they do this hard work first, there's nothing else to do in the organization because you got to make sure that they are fastened to what it's going to take to see this through. And not everyone is ready or willing or able to take it to that next step, right, Rob? So what, what you are showcasing is that in many instances, yes, you know, we want to understand what's happening. We want to be better. But before it can get better, you have to understand what we're dealing with. And the more you unpack that, the more uncertainty and discomfort there is. And once the knots, you know, show up in the stomach, once you put people of color in those positions to, to share and then nothing changes, the clock is ticking on people making a decision about their exit strategy, right? Because again, an already unsafe work environment has even become more unsafe, right? And so people make different decisions. And then just to close up your comment, Rob, you, you, were, you hit the nail on the head. Um, one of the things that we're talking about is now more and more organizations are challenging one another indivisibly to publish their diversity numbers. And so, you know, they're very focused on, you know, having a, a broader, deeper talent pipeline. And what I'll say is the pipeline is one thing. Getting people in the door and getting people into the organization is one thing. Do you have the ecosystem and the culture to keep them? Are you as focused on the engagement strategy and how you're thinking about mentoring and training and aligning them across your succession schema to keep them? And if the answer is no, then you're going to get a revolving door. You'll get more, you'll, you'll get more diverse talent in, but you won't be able to keep them. So it's not just, you know, here's how we're thinking about talent acquisition. Here's how, here are the different um, diverse universities that we're going to now engage with. If you're not always also thinking about the entire employee life cycle and the employee experience and your engagement approach, you're not going to be able to keep them. Because what's important to, again, it goes back to it not being a monolith. What works for certain groups of people in terms of engagement, promotion, incentive, uh, things that drive excitement, meaningful work is going to differ. Uh, for different groups of people. And so you've got to be willing to build an ecosystem that supports that. And if you're not, you're probably going to do more damage than you're going to do good in the short term. And, and just to build on what Anika so eloquently <laughs> said, she's so amazing. Um, and thanks, Rob, for your comment. But so, so the flip side is, and you mentioned it in the comment, is performative actions, right? Yeah. So, and I think as HR, Maybe sometimes we don't even know that that's what they are. So I'm just going to list a few and I'm sure you can add to it. And I'm just going to say, stop doing these performative actions and do everything that Anika said, right? And I, to give examples in the US, at least performative actions are, you know, putting the lone black person in charge of DEI, or like in your case, Rob, you know, this committee, and then just to be able to check off, we listened to these three diverse people check the box. We have a DEI person, check the box. We uh, publish these DEI statistics, check the box, you know, and the list goes on and on and on, right? We put the black box on our social media, check the box, right? All these, oh, unconscious bias training, another one, you know, which is proven 
to not change behavior. It might raise some awareness, but there's actually neuroscience behind it that it actually does not change behavior. But that's, you know, in the US, that's an $8 billion industry. That's usually what's thrown at. Checks the box, you know, we, we now have tackled racism with all these actions. So if, if you, any of you in HR, do any of these things. Take it. I'm not saying don't do these things necessarily. I'm saying they're not enough because in themselves, they are absolutely performative. Okay. So you need to look at the system. As Onika said, you need to look at why are people leaving? You need to look at why aren't you getting diverse people in? You need to look at the entire HR ecosystem. Uh, and then maybe at some of these alone, they're only performative. Don't do it. <laughs> well what a conversation to say we've just touched the surface uh, skin the surface is clearly a, a, a huge understatement um i kendra anika nicole i would so love you to come back in a, in a few months time and share some more of your insights and learnings and um everything else from the community for now um how can our listeners and our watchers on youtube how can they get involved in the community Absolutely. So like I mentioned earlier, uh, definitely join our Mighty Network. You can go to hrversusracism.org and find out and see all the different resources and articles and research that we've um, you know, pulled together for one. And of course, we've, like I said, we've got our community. Definitely join that. You can find, find us on LinkedIn, on Instagram, on Twitter. And um, we just look forward to connecting with you all and keeping this important conversation going. Thank you so much. And I know, Kate, anybody who has subscribed to the show on our mailing list for the show, they'll get links to all of that and also the other um, books and, and podcasts and everything that we've mentioned so far. Um, I'll just quickly flag up what we have coming next and then I'll come back to you guys. So in two weeks time, that is, if I'm correct, Katie Nod, 28th of July. Uh, we have got Tom Nodge from Crown Worldwide Group and Sam Nolds from Insight Agents. We'll be looking at the role of purpose um, in organizations and particularly how that's helping organizations navigate, survive, um, get through this pandemic, and also how you evaluate the, the, the impact of your purpose, how you actually make it meaningful and not just papers on, uh, posters on the wall. That's what we've got coming in in two weeks' time. So do join us for now. I'm just going to come back again, once again, to say Kendra, Anika, Nicole, and all of our guests today. It's just an amazing, amazing conversation. Thank you so much for your, for your sharing, for your authenticity, and um, please come back again and let, let's continue the conversation. Thank you everyone for joining us. Join us again next time. <laughs>